Chapter Eight of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Eight: The Wisdom of Solomon. For four years after Mrs. Ansell's charity funeral, the Ansells, though far from happy, had no history to speak of. Benjamin accompanied Solomon to shul morning and evening to say Kaddish for their mother, till he passed into the orphan asylum and out of the lives of his relatives. Solomon and Rachel and Esther went to the great school, and Isaac to the infant school, while the tiny Sarah, whose birth had cost Mrs. Ansell's life, crawled and climbed about in the garret the grandmother coming in negatively useful as a safeguard against fire on the days when the grate was not empty. The booby's own conception of her function as a safeguard against the fire was quite other. Moses was out all day working or looking for work, or praying or listening to droshes by the Magid or other great preachers. Such charities as brightened and warmed the ghetto Moses usually came in for. Bread, meat, and coal tickets, godsends from the Society for Restoring the Soul, made odd days memorable. Blankets were not so easy as to get in the days of poor Gittel's confinements. What little cooking there was to do was done by Esther, before or after school. She and her children usually took their midday meal with them in the shape of bread, occasionally made ambrosial by treacle. The Ansells had more fast days than the Jewish calendar, which is saying a good deal. Providence, however, generally stepped in before the larder had been bare twenty-four hours. As the fast days of the Jewish calendar did not necessarily fall upon Ansell fast days, they were an additional tax on Moses and his mother yet neither ever wavered in the scrupulous observation of them, not a crumb of bread nor a drop of water passing their lips. In the keen search for facts detrimental to the ghetto, it is surprising that no political economist has hitherto exposed the abundant fasts with which Israel has been endowed, and which obviously operate as a dole in aid of wages so does the Lenten period of the three weeks, when meat is prohibited in memory of the shattered temples. The Ansells kept the Be'in Metzarim pretty much all year round. On rare occasions they purchased pickled Dutch herrings, or bought home pennyworths of pea-soup, of baked potatoes and rice, from a neighbouring cook-shop for festival days, if Malka had subsidized them with half a sovereign, Esther sometimes compounded Simus, a dainty blend of carrots, pudding, and potatoes. She was prepared to write an essay on Simus as a gastronomic ideal. There were other pleasing Polish combinations which were baked for tuppence by the local bakers. Tabechus, or stuffed entrails, and liver, lights, or milt, were good substitutes for meat. 
A favourite soup was borscht, which was made from beetroot, fat taking the place of more fashionable cream. The national dish was seldom their lot. When fried fish came it was usually from the larder of Mrs. Simmons, a motherly old widow who lived in the second-floor front and presided over the confinements of all the women and the sickness of all children in the neighbourhood. Her married daughter, Dinah, was providentially suckling a black-eyed boy when Mrs. Ansell died, so Mrs. Simmons converted her into a foster-mother of little Sarah, regarding herself ever afterwards as under special responsibility toward the infant whom she occasionally took to live with her for a week, and for whom she saw heaven encouraging a future alliance with the black-eyed foster-brother. Life would have been gloomier still in the Ansell garret if Mrs. Simmons had not been created to bless and sustain. Even old garments somehow arrived from Mrs. Simmons to eke out the corduroys and the print gowns which were the gifts of the school. There were few pleasanter events in the Ansell household than the falling ill of one of the children, for not only did this mean a supply of broth, port wine, and other incredible luxuries from the charitable doctor, of which all could taste, but it brought in its train the assiduous attention of Mrs. Simmons. To see the kindly brown face bending over it with smiling eyes of jet, to feel the soft cool hand pressed to its forehead was worth a fever to a motherless infant. Mrs. Simmons was a busy woman and a poor withal, and the Ansells were a reticent pack, not given to expressing either their love or their hunger to outsiders. So altogether the children did not see as much of Mrs. Simmons or her bounties as they would have liked. Nevertheless, in a grave crisis she was always to be counted on. "'I tell thee what, Moshe,' said old Mrs. Ansell often, "'that woman wants to marry thee. A blind man could see it.' "'She cannot want it, mother,' Moses would reply with infinite respect. "'What art thou saying? A wholly fine young man like thee," said his mother, fondling his pious. "'And one so from too, and with such worldly wisdom. But thou must not have her, Moshe. What kind of an idea hast thou stuffed into my head? I tell thee she would not have me if I sent to ask. Talk not thyself thereinto. Who wouldn't like to catch hold of thy cloak to go to heaven by? But Mrs. Simmons is too much of an Englishwoman for me. Your last wife had English ideas and made a mock of pious men, and God's judgment took her. What says the sitter? For three things a woman dies in childbirth, for not separating the dough, for not lighting the Shabbos lamps, and for—how often have I told you she did all those things?" interrupted Moses. 
"'Dost thou contradict the prayer-book?' said the old booby angrily. "'It would have been different if thou hast let me pick a woman for thee, but this time thou wilt honour thy mother more. It must be a respectable, virtuous maiden with the fear of heaven, not an old woman like Mrs. Simmons, but one who can bear me robust grandchildren. The grandchildren thou hast given me are sickly, and they fear not the Most High. Ah, oh, why didst thou drag me into this impious country? Couldst thou not let me die in peace? Thy girls think more of English story-books and lessons than of Yiddishkeit. And the boys, ach, run out under the naked sky with bare heads, and are loath to wash their hands before meals. And they do not come home in the dinner-hour, for fear they should have to say mincha. Laugh at me, Moses, as thy wilt, but old as I am I have eyes, and not two blotches of clay in my sockets. Thou seest not how thy family is going to destruction, oh, the abominations!" Thus warned and put on his mettle, Moses would keep a keen lookout on his hopeful family for the next day, and the seed which the grandmother had sown came up in black and blue bruises on the family anatomy, especially on that portion of it which belonged to Solomon. For Moses' crumbling trousers were buckled with a stout strap, and Solomon was a young rogue who did his best to dodge the Almighty, and had never heard of Lowell's warning, "'You've got to get up early if you want to take in God.' Even if he had heard of it, he would probably have retorted that he usually got up early enough to take in his father who was the more immediately terrible of the two. Nevertheless, Solomon learned many lessons at his father's knee, or rather across it. In earlier days Solomon had a number of confidential transgressions with his father's god, making bargains with him according to his childish sense of equity. If, for instance, God would ensure his doing his sums correctly, so he should be neither caned nor kept in, he would say his morning prayer without skipping the aggravating Langevarachim, which balked so largely on Mondays and Thursdays. Otherwise he could not be bothered. By the terms of the contract Solomon threw all the initiative on the deity, and whenever the deity undertook his share of the contract Solomon honourably fulfilled his. Thus was his faith in Providence never shaken like that of some boys, who expect the deity to follow their lead. Still, by declining to praise his Maker at extraordinary length, except in acknowledgment of services rendered, Solomon gave early evidence of his failure to inherit his father's business incapacity. 
On days when things at the school went well, no one gabbed through the weary Siddur more conscientiously than he. He said all the things in large type, and all the funny little bits in small type, and even some passages without vowels. Nay, he included the very preface, and was lured on and coaxed on and enticed by his father to recite the appendices, which shot up one after the other on the devotional horizon like the endless-seeming terraces of a deceptive ascent. Just another little bit, and now just that last little bit, and one very last little bit. It was like the infinite inclusiveness of a Chinese sphere, or the farewell performance of a distinguished singer. For the rest, Solomon was a China Punim, or droll, having that indistinguishable sense of humour which has made the saints of the Jewish church human, has lit up dry, technical, Talmudic discussions with flashes of freakish fun, with pun and jest and merry quibble, and has helped the race to survive by dint of a humorous acquiescence in the inevitable. His china helped Solomon survive the synagogue, where the only drop of sweetness was in the beaker of wine for the sanctification service. Solomon was always in the van of the brave boys who volunteered to take part in the ceremonial quaffing of it. Decidedly, Solomon was not spiritual. He would not even kiss a humash or pentateuch that he had dropped unless his father was looking, and, but for the personal supervision of the booby, the dirty white fringes of his tzitzit might have got tangled and irredeemably invalidated, for all he cared. In the direst need of the Ansells, Solomon held his curly head high among his schoolfellows, and never lacked personal possessions, though they were not negotiable at the pawnbroker's. He had a peep-show made out of an old cocoa-box, and representing the sortie from Pevna, a permit to view being obtainable for a fragment of slate-pencil. For two pins he would let you look a whole minute. He also had bags of brass buttons, marbles, both commoners and alleys, nibs, beer-bottle labels, and cherry-hogs, besides bottles of licorice water vendable either by the sip or the teaspoonful, and he dealt in assy-tassy, which consisted of little packets of ascetic acid blent with brown sugar. The character of his stock varied according to the time of year, for nature and Belgravia are less stable in their seasons than the Jewish schoolboy, to whom buttons in March are as inconceivable as snowballing in July. On Purim Solomon always had nuts to gamble with, just as if he had been a banker's son, and on the Day of Atonement he was never without the little tin fusée-box filled with savings of snuff. This, when the fast racked them most sorely, he would pass round among the old men with a grand manner. They would take a pinch and say Yoshekoach, and blow their delighted noses with great coloured handkerchiefs, and Solomon would feel about fifty, and sniff a few grains himself 
with the air of an aged connoisseur. He took little interest in the subtle disquisitions of the rabbis, which added their burden to his cross of secular learning. He wrestled but perfunctorily with the thesis of the Bible commentators, for Moses Ansell was so absorbed in translating and enjoying the intellectual tangles that Solomon had scarce more to do than play the part of chorus. He was fortunate in that his father could not afford to send him to a cheder, an unsanitary institution that made Jacob a dull boy by cutting off his playtime and his oxygen, and delivering him over to the leathery mercies of an unintelligently learned zealot, scrupulously unclean. The literature and history Solomon really cared for was not of the Jews. It was the history of Daredevil Dick and his congeners, whose surprising adventures, second-hand in ink-stained sheets, were bartered to him for buttons, which shows the advantages of not having a soul above such. These deeds of derrying do, usually starting in a storm and drung schoolroom period in which teachers were thankfully accepted as created by providence for the sport of schoolboys, Solomon conned at all hours, concealing them under his locker when he was supposed to be studying the Irish question from an atlas, and even hiding them between the leaves of his dog-eared sidder for use during Shakaris, the morning service. The only harm they did him was that inflicted through the medium of the educational rod, when his surreptitious readings were discovered, and his treasures thrown to the flames amid tears copious enough to extinguish them. End of chapter 8